Oh, guess where I went to yesterday? Don't care. Where? I went to Paramount. <laughs> I went to. I don't care what you say, Connor. At least Daniel sort of cares. I went to Paramount Pictures. It was awesome. What were you doing there? He's, cr- he's crossing the picket line. He was scabbing. It was like, <laughs> you need writers? I'm right. I'm right. Welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers, to Secret Movie Club Podcast 152. Today, we are talking about comfort food movies. And secondarily, We Bought a Zoo, Cameron Crowe's adaptation of a novel, We Bought a Zoo, from the early 2010s. We will explain why later. But the main topic is comfort food movies. Who is with us today? What's up? It's Daniel. Hey, gamers. It's me, Connor Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion. Uh, You're with a guy who has seen We Bought a Zoo. Let me me check this letterbox, actually, real quick. (laughs) That's good writing. I guess we're revealing in Act 1 what we're going to get to in Act 3. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 since October of 21, which is, I think, more times than I've seen any of the Marvel movies in that time that Edwin always gives me crap about. So, <laughs> it's Edwin Gomez. Yeah. Hello, America. Uh, shut up, Craig. Just ru- Craig, Connor, do the thing. Craig ruined it's, it. It's Edwin Gomez. Hello, folks. Hello, America. It's one of those days where you just come on a podcast. It's a rough economical time to own a zoo, I would imagine. Hey, I'm Craig, founder, programmer of Secret Movie Club. Uh, Guys, uh, uh, gals, he, she, they, everybody out there, uh, it is wonderful to have all of you. Oh, this week we're showing so many movies that I've seen and know how to pronounce the names of the names of the directors. Today, when you hear this, June 23rd, when this comes out, we're showing Bob Le Flambeur and Le Cercle Rouge. Both by Jean-Pierre Melville. Oh, my God. They're Gallic heists and capers. Next one, we're doing a triple feature on Saturday of three Fellini films, I, Vitaloni, Juliet of the Spirits, and Amarcord, all in 35mm. Next Monday, the 26th, we're doing another movie of trivia, sort of, with Kyle Ayers. That should be a lot of fun. On Wednesday, we're doing our open mic short night for June. This month's theme... Heists and capers. And finally, this Thursday, we're doing Daisies by Vera Chitilova and Cleo from 5 to 7 by Agnes Varda. It's female filmmakers across the decades. You can see everything that we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. Use Eventbrite to get tickets and write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Uh, all right, let's get to it. So uh, this the, week... the trial of Edwin Gomez. <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, I, I actually thought this was going to be more loving. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. We're joking. <laughs> okay. The topic of this podcast came from I am not on Letterboxd, although I'm trying. We're going to get Secret Movie Club on Letterboxd pretty quickly here, but you guys are. And in the course of our pre-pod recording conversations that people always hear excerpts from at the beginning and the end of our pods, I think Daniel noticed or Connor noticed like do you know that Edwin has watched We Bought a Zoo three times or like four times in the last week? I'm sure we just saw it happening, like an extended car accident. We just we just saw like, why does he keep logging this? I thought Letterboxd was broken. And every time I'd be come back another day, I'd be like, oh, just keep showing Edwin's still watching like this movie because it cycles out by the newest entries of your friends. And so I kept being like, it's just stuck. Edwin's just stuck on my front page watching We Bought a Zoo. And then only when we further researched do we discover it was not a, a mistake. You watched it five times in like a month and a half from yeah. October 27th of 2021 to December 
12th of 2021. You watched it five times. And just so the audience knows, we, we always record these pods via Zoom from the comfort of our own domiciles or workspaces. But Edwin's face right now, he's very pleased. He's smiling. He's nodding. I love he's, he just put a pipe in his mouth that he bought in Palm Springs at the Vintage Market. That's empty. There's his cover photo. That pipe is dope, by the way. Uh, so Edwin is totally at peace with the fact that he loves We Bought a Zoo, which, by the way, I actually watched it for this pod. And I get, I teared up a number of times. But we're going to go around the horn first before we get to the climax finale of We Bought a Zoo. And we're each going to talk about comfort food movies and what they mean for us. And I'm just going to set up a definition that you guys can accept or bat away. And what we're saying is a comfort food movie, it could be an acknowledged classic. It could be so bad it's good. It could be a movie you're a little embarrassed about. I remember I'm a big fan of the heyday of The Onion, the satirical newspaper that used to run online with, and still there, by the way, a lot of great comedy writers write for The Onion. And uh, whenever an Onion satirical news article really landed, it would make me just sort of double over with laughter. And one of the headlines that I had to share with people was something like, person wakes up from one night stand to the horror of lover's DVD collection. And uh, <laughs> it was just like the whole article was like, you had a one night stand and then you looked and you have to go back and read the article, but it was like that person had how to lose a guy in 10 days. They had two copies of it on DVD or Blu-ray and the person couldn't believe who they had hooked up with by looking at. And so it could be a movie you're vaguely embarrassed about, but you truly love, but it's a movie that you watch that makes you feel good for whatever reason. That's my definition. Let the breakfast man go. First. Daniel's got a beautiful photo behind him on his Zoom of chicken fried steak and eggs, which I love. I kind of resent you having it up there because I, I am very hungry right now. It's, <laughs> chicken fried steak and eggs is not only my comfort food, but would be my final meal given the opportunity. My, my comfort food movie is just literally video of chicken fried steak. I'm just like sitting there <laughs> watching it. Like those things they have on YouTube that's ASMR for like five yeah. hours. If yeah. you watch my Twitch stream, it's just me at a diner eating chicken fried steak and eggs in complete silence. Wow. Alone? Oh, no one will go with me, to be very clear. Nor do I want them there. It's a very private moment for me. Surrounded by mourners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dressed in black. I think the concept of a comfort movie is perfect because it, I, I'm very anti the concept of guilty pleasure. You like what you like, you should be commended for that because there's value in it. Whether it's emotional or nostalgic, whatever it is, it, in art. You can like it. Your friends can still give you crap about it. But I think if you like it, you like it. There's no guilt to it. And I think that's it doesn't quite stack up to what a comfort food movie is necessarily. But I think in the realm of stuff, comfort food cinema is the type of things just like warms, touches like a specific part of your heart. And you feel so lovely when you watch it. It's the rainy day or like sick day tool to get better, I guess. I feel like it's as simple as that. It's a beautiful thing. I'd be hard. I would be very curious if someone was anti-comfort food movies. I could see it. You know, like all cinema love, there are some people who, whether they admit it or not, they outwardly would be like, no, you have to always challenge yourself if you've seen it. Sure. Yeah. I could imagine. Maybe I'm wrong, but I could imagine well, that. I would be curious. I, I think it's probably a, a larger conversation, but I think it's interesting to sort of get, there are people like some of us who I very, I love rewatching movies. I typically find like my second watch of a movie in particular is when it really lands with me. I always try to watch a movie for the first time as an audience member, which is sometimes difficult. I think if you work in any form of art, it's sometimes hard to watch or experience that form of art without- Or studied it. Yeah. Putting your like technical brain 
or creative brain around it. Um, so I love to revisit things. And I think you rebuild comfort stuff. But it's it's interesting too because my like my parents are not big movie people necessarily, but they watch a lot of new things. And there's so few movies that they go back to that there's like movies from throughout their life. There's only like three or four probably, but anytime it's on TV, they'll watch it. And like those stand out. What are those for your folks? Like my mom loves While You Were Sleeping and she loves Sleepless in Seattle, just sleeping movies, I guess. <laughs> and she loves Overboard. Like those three movies in particular, the if they're on, the Big Sleep. Sleepers. Um, uh, sleepwalk With Me. <laughs> Sleeping With The Enemy. My dad likes Die Hard and Christmas <laughs> nice. Vacation. The man loves Christmas Vacation. The best thing about my father, this is a side note, is anytime you watch a movie that he's seen literally every year at Christmas, because you watch it every year, he experiences it as if he's seen it for the first time. He laughs at things like he's never heard the joke before, and it's very pure. And he talks to the entire movie. My dad is not someone you ever watch a movie for the first time with, because he will talk. And it's not questions, it's commentary. And I always live tweet it or put it on Letterboxd, because it is wild. We watched Die Hard for Christmas, and he talked about the AC ducks in large buildings and why they have to be the size that they are. I don't think they're, they're not accurate in the film, necessarily. But he talked about when they're up at the units near the roof of the building, he talked about the capacity of why they need to be the way that they are. And I'm just trying to watch him fight Alan Rickman, but, Hans but I love that. I love that he experiences things through that lens. That being said, my comfort, I think my number one comfort movie has shifted over the years. I have a pretty big list of them, but the one that I return to time and time again that's relatively recent, and I've talked about many times in the podcast, is Jim Jarmusch's Patterson. I think to me that epitomizes just like the mental space I want to be in when I'm in a particular mood. That mood can be a little melancholic. It can be sad, joyful, a new life thing. I find the energy of Patterson to be like the headspace I want to be in. There's no action. There's no like big stakes. It's just about a bus driving poet and his artist wife. His name's Patterson. They live in Patterson, New Jersey, which is home to a bunch of famous artists. And it's just their day to day for a week. And it's beautiful and puts me in the loveliest headspace. That's a great movie. I always have you to thank, Daniel, because you were waxing rhapsodic about it a few years ago. And I, and I am a big Jarmish fan, but I had fallen off a little bit and I hadn't seen some of his newer entries. And you were like, oh, it's, and I saw it. And I think uh, Patterson's maybe his masterpiece. It's so good. It's, my favorite thing, because it's hard to sell it, like if you watch the trailer for it, it almost looks like a Hallmark movie. Like there's nothing to make it, there's no excitement. Oh, the trailer cutter must have been banging his head. <laughs> they were like, make it sexy. Give it a ticking clock. All right, he's driving the bus here and there's, there's an overlay of poetry uh, and it's Adam Driver. And this is Adam Driver. I mean, it's a year after The Force Awakens, so he's in the realm of like mainstream consciousness is coming in, but like not the thing you'd follow him through necessarily after if you're a, you know, a Kylo Ren fan, I guess. But following his career from before that, I was like, anything this man does, I will watch. And that's proven to be a pretty good track record for me. Again, off topic. You know, one of the criticisms that sometimes gets leveled against Jarmish is his slow pacing and like deliberate style and almost anti-narrative occasionally, not always, but occasionally. In Patterson, just spending a week with those people where an alien doesn't land, someone doesn't get killed. Like if you don't raise the money, mom loses the house. Like it's just them and a couple who love each other for a week. It's really one of the most optimistic, positive films of the last 10 years. And if you can just lock into it and people enjoy each other's company and they like to talk to each other, 
there, there's just something very humanly beautiful about that film. And I like it too because it works as like a nice palate cleanser that then if you follow it up with a with something, a big spectacle piece, like it, it hits, that hits harder too because you've spent like all this time in this realm and now you've shifting to this. And I, I like that it sort of gets to like, it's like um, a cinema cleanse. It's like a piece of, is it ginger that you eat in between bites of sushi? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Typically, it feels like the ginger for the next, like, beautiful roll, and I, I like that it gets to do that. And it's one of those things that I think grows with you. Every time I watch it, I, I make a note. Um, I read someone else's review about this great note that every day opens with, like, an overhead shot of him and his wife in bed, and he wakes up and tries to not wake her up. Typically, there's a shot the night before of him putting his clothes out, and it's not focused on. It's usually, like like behind his wife talking or something, just putting his clothes out. And then the last time I watched it, I had realized that he does that so that when he wakes up, he takes his clothes to get dressed so he doesn't wake up his wife. And it's like little details like that that I'm like, that's the cutest thing. And it speaks to character. I, I think I was thinking of comfort movies more on like the depressive side of the way that like I will unfortunately use food sometimes where it's like, I'm sad. I need something tasty. For me, the kind of stuff that I rewatch a lot is more like YouTube series. A lot of stuff I've already kind of mentioned before. I will get to a couple of movies in a second, but stuff I've already mentioned, last podcast on the left, uh, Red Letter Media, Game Grump sometimes, the McElroy brothers have a lot of good content online, all worth checking out. I, I've been, this is just a random, this is not even related to movies, but Griffin McElroy does a, a series of randomizer runs of Zelda, which is where they take the Zelda games and they mix up where all the key items are. So he never knows, like he could open something that's supposed to be the biggest, best weapon in the game and it's two bucks. And then he could open up something that's supposed to be two bucks and it could be the biggest weapon in the game. And it's also uh, Guy Fieri themed. So uh, <laughs> it's called like Trial by Fieri. Well, wait, you mean they somehow can program the video games differently? Yeah, you can do these randomizers. The Link to the Past is probably the most famous one. And that's the Zelda game he did first. And he has this great little Guy Fieri sprite instead of Link. I guess they've figured out a way to like like hack in and they just switch the key items around everywhere it's a whole thing where people will speed run it and see how fast they can do it all randomized it's really cool actually i want to try to do it with a game i know really well but the problem is, is none of the games i know really well are structured like that like i could do it with maybe like resident evil 4 but resident evil 4 is a very linear <laughs> game they'd literally just start throwing random rooms at me <laughs> uh which could be cool i also uh a couple of years ago, I did go through like a really, really long state where I think it was right before I started really getting involved with Secret Movie Club and right after uh, some other creative projects had fallen through. And I was just playing a lot of Super Mario Odyssey and watching Frasier which is also like Patterson, just about people living their lives uh, in Seattle. <laughs> Never any sort of artificial conflict on that show whatsoever. But then also, because of this background, I remember I ended up watching the Saw movies. Okay, that's what I thought that was. But... Those were one of the like two things that actually came to mind that were movies. That was your comfort food movie? I, well, they're so stupid, is the thing. Is they're really stupid at a certain point? The first couple I'd already seen, and then you start getting to the later ones. I think bad slasher sequels, bad horror movie sequels are my maybe my comfort food. I think I'm realizing because I never like them that much, but I'm always like, I'm never upset about watching them. A, they're always like 90 minutes. 
they never take themselves that seriously so i'm never like mad at the movie and you know there always ends up being like one or two moments where you're like that's pretty cool like i I love the saw movies too they just feel like a great soap opera but every new season the writers change and are also on strike and some of the decision making is wild like i love that saw just finds new ways to bring back someone they've killed five movies ago because they're like oh people liked him and we killed him Oops, let's just correct. That's the biggest thing about the Saw movies specifically is where a lot of slasher, because the Saw movies are essentially of a, a, a variation of a slasher franchise. Most slasher movies kind of do like hard resets at the beginning of their movie. Like Friday the 13th movies famously will open up with the survivor of the previous movie getting killed. And then we just introduce a new bunch of characters and nothing from the last movie recurs. But the Saw movies are like steeped in continuity where each movie is like flat flashing back to the behind the scenes of the previous movies. One of the movies has a twist ending where the twist is that it was happening at the same time as another one of the movies. I love. Which when you hear that out of context, you're like, it's meaningless. And then you watch it and it's, it's also essentially meaningless, but it is, it's pretty funny when you're like, oh man, they want us to be shocked by that. Spoiler for like, I don't remember which one, but there's a moment where like one of the main characters that died in the third movie reappears in like the eighth or ninth, but he's like quite a bit older in real life and so to make him look younger he just has a hat on and it's the funniest (laughs) it's like one of the hardest i've ever laughed in a movie because they didn't try aging him down there's no cgi just put a hat on him and i think it's incredible how's the chris rock one you know what it's funny that's the one i haven't seen yet because that's like the ninth one i think whenever the eighth one came out i like caught up on the seventh and then it keeps happening where each time one comes out i catch up on the last (laughs) one so when the tenth one comes out i'll see the chris rock one yeah i'm i'm the same connor i i'm such a sucker for them that i guess you know I, i love them even the Chris Rock one's a lot of fun. And then the one the one other thing that went into my head when thinking about this is um, 10 years ago, somebody like fell into my window in my apartment at Austin, like drunkenly walking around and they fell in and smashed. You know, this is the middle of the night, scared the hell out of me. And it was Matthew McConaughey. It was Matthew McConaughey. Um, no, it was some probably just some random frat guy because I lived in kind of a fratty area. Um, so it was Matthew McConaughey? It scared the hell out of me, but there wasn't really anything I could do until the next morning other than I just needed to like camp out because I was on the ground floor because I guess theoretically someone could <laughs> like climb through the window I I just put Scott Pilgrim on I remember uh that was my my first impulse was like I need I want to put something on to be relaxing in front of me just pleasing and it was uh Scott Pilgrim was my brain's go-to choice in a moment of trauma so that makes sense that's a fun movie that is a fun movie also yeah. a a hugely rewatchable movie. I mean, this is probably solipsistic. There, there's a philosophical term. I think it's a solipsism where I'm probably getting it wrong, where it's not a proof for anything and it's actually intellectually vacuous where people think that what they're saying proves something else. But in fact, all you're doing is restating the same thing a different way. But uh, it's probably that to just say that a comfort food movie probably calms you down, makes you feel good. And uh, I think it's maybe a characteristic of a comfort food movie that you get more out of it every time you see it, that it's not diminishing returns or, or some, some comfort food movie. When I was a teenager specifically, I used to watch movies the way that Edwin watched, uh, we watched a zoo. If I got a movie that I really loved, I would watch it three or four times in the course of a week or two. I remember one of them was Thelma and Louise. 
I saw Thelma and Louise when I was 13 or 14. I think my grandmother recorded it for me off HBO or whatever it was, because I know I had it on long play VHS tape. I made my bubby. She had HBO, my bubby and Zadie, Yiddish for grandmother and grandfather. And they had HBO. So I would give her a list. And she was such a good grandmother. She would like make me these long play VHS tapes that would have like eight and a half. Thelma and Louise, <laughs> my 20th century, and Jane Campion's an angel at my table. And then I'd be like, thank you, Bubby. And, you know, she kind of had a look at her face. Like, she wanted to tell me it was a pain in the ass, but she, she, like, wouldn't tell me that. She'd be like, I'm glad you're happy, Craig. And I was like, this is the best. And then I'd take it home and I'd watch these movies, like, whole, probably filmmakers rolling, like, in their sleep that I'm watching their movies on long play VHS. But I saw uh, Thelma and Louise, and I remember really loving it, but specifically loving the ending and how it made me feel for some weird reason. And kind of getting that Harvey Keitel sort of supported Thelma and Louise, and he understood. For people who haven't seen that movie, Keitel ends up being a, a police officer, has to go chasing after them once they've shot the would-be rapist. And they decide that they're going to go to Mexico, that they're not going back to boyfriends or husbands, that they're just becoming female outlaws. And they're leaving sort of how stifling America is to women. Uh, a fascinating movie for anybody who's never seen Thelma and Louise with Susan Sarandon, Gina Davis, directed by Ridley Scott, Brad Pitt's breakout movie. I remember not minding the hot love scene too, where Brad Pitt and Gina <laughs> Davis just bone like crazy in a room. And I remember always like secretly looking forward to that scene. But the ending, uh, which is, you know, kind of a classic 90s ending where they drive over a cliff because they're just not going back. They're going to go out together. And Harvey Keitel chases after them, like pumping his fist. I've read actually that that's not necessarily how they wanted that to be read, that it was meant to be more ambivalent in terms of Harvey Keitel and what he's trying to do. He may be trying to call them back. He may be angry that they're going and and they filmed a, a thing where he looks over and sees that the car has exploded. And instead they were like, no, let's end with them freeze frame going over the cliff. But I just remember loving the way that movie made me feel. And so for two weeks, I would like my family would go to bed and at 11 p.m. I'd put on Thelma and Louise and I watched it uh, five times. Thinking about more recent comfort food movies, they're movies that put me, that make me feel a way I want to feel. So I remember as odd as this will sound, like Bergman's Wild Strawberries was just a feeling I loved because it was ultimately an optimistic, humanistic movie, but I'd never seen filmmaking like that, being a kid from the suburbs of the United States. And Fellini and Bergman would make me feel like, oh man, you can make movies like this. And I felt like I had discovered something. So I'd watch Eight and a Half and Wild Strawberries. And actually to this day, that 50s, 60s international art film, Japanese, uh, French, Italian, Swedish, like it just, it, it will, and I'll watch it to remind me of how I felt as a kid about what movies could do. All right. The trial of Edwin Gomez. <laughs> so why don't you, why don't you tell us about We Bought a Zoo? Yes, yes. We Take that out of your mouth. Let me I do love, my spiel, I Connor. I love the look, but it on, on record. The audio on... is bad. All right. Look, 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 free. So we bought a zoo. Is I know I can't do it. You just fucked it up. Just, <laughs> all right. Uh. So yes, I've watched We Bought a Zoo about six times in a row. I love that. I love that. Now I'm a little stuck on this. You watched it October 27th, October 28th, November 1st, November 4th, and then December 12th. 
before then waiting a year to come back to it? Was there what what sparked that five watch cycle? There was nothing else to watch, and usually I'm pretty good at watching other movies, but you know there there were times where it's like you know I can't find anything, and uh, I was on Amazon Prime or Hulu when I watched it on, and uh, it was right there. Uh, Matt Damon and uh, Scarlett Johansson and uh, Cameron Crowe just uh, facing facing towards me, man. Say, hey, man, you should uh, you should watch We Bought a Zoo. And I said, all right, played it, watched it, loved it, watched it again, loved it, and I watched it again, also loved it. By the fourth watch, I started to discover that I'm repeating this movie multiple times for some odd reason, I, and I, I don't understand why. And I watched it again for the fifth time, and then the sixth time. And then from there, I stopped because they left Hulu and Amazon Prime. So I was really bummed that I couldn't watch it we'll anymore. Get you, we'll get you a copy of it. Yeah, we gotta get you a DVD. I want, I want a DVD. I want a fucking Blu-ray. There's, there are Blu-rays. Can you explain the plot of what happens when we bought a zoo, Edwin? Oh, so basically, Matt Demas is a uh, adventurous news reporter that uh, uh, his wife uh, passed away, and so he's uh, left alone with his uh, two children and a dog, and he wants to, you know, change the uh, environment, you know, because his son is kind of an ass. Uh, the daughter, though, is the most sweetest human being in the world. I wish the movie was mainly about those two instead of the son, because I hate the son so much. Uh, he sort of redeems himself in the movie, but it's not enough. And so next thing you know, uh, they say, let's go find a new home, man. And, uh, and Matt Damon took his daughter out to find new houses. The next thing you know, her, his daughter said, Look, what about this one? And next thing you know, it's a zoo. It's a zoo. Yeah, it's a zoo. So that was a very solid synopsis. Yeah, thank you, thank you. So, have you seen this movie too, Daniel? I have. Okay, so I'm the only one who hasn't seen the movie. What's funny is I watched it because Edwin was watching it so much, and I had never seen it. It was like kind of a bit. I'll explain that there was a bit, which was 2014, 2015. I just moved to LA. Was living with three of my friends from college. Was on. I was like searching. I was trying to. I was buying a movie on I think Amazon or something, and there was a pricing error on DVD copies of We Bought a Zoo. <laughs> And I just ordered, it was like 63 was the number I could get to, and I ordered them. And they didn't all ship. It was like seven cents a copy. Like, I think it's just be $7, and it was seven cents. And they shipped like 20-ish, maybe. And so the bit was I would replace the discs of my friend's DVDs with we, copies of We Bought a Zoo. Not the actual thing. I, I added one copy of We Bought a Zoo into their, like, thing, so that it was on their shelf as one. But then I would replace the disc of, like, some of their most popular movies, and then I kept... The other ones to the side for safety. But we just had like 20 to 30 copies of We Bought a Zoo floating around our home at any given moment. And we never watched it. Like the other bit was that we would <laughs> never watch it. But then when I saw Edwin going through it during the pandemic and processing his uh, trauma and grief through We Bought a Zoo, I decided I should watch We Bought a Zoo. And I was stunned because I thought it would be just a goof. But I was like, this is a pretty heartwarming little picture. Yeah, yeah it is. Except for the sign, though. The sign's yeah, doesn't little... he like kick kick toward an animal at one point or yeah, something? Yeah, he kicks like, a snake, he kicks man. A snake. Yeah. yeah. See, like I said, oh, yeah. the, the oh. movie should have been, I know, I know it's based on a true story, but still, I wish, in my version, I wish there was no son, it was just him and a daughter, because the, him and a daughter have the sweetest relationship ever in the movie. Oh, really? But I th but the, the movie doesn't have a lot of real conflict, and the conflict between him and his son is one of the, the real conflicts of the movie. Yeah, I know, but I just didn't like him. He was unlikable. Well, what kind of feeling? What what kind of feeling did you get watching it? Because it's that sort of almost a, a revelatory reveal of your inner poet soul. 
Because it's a it's it's an emotional movie. No, I say it is an emotional movie. Because I, one, I love Cameron Crowe, and then this is something of a, a movie he would do most most definitely. Even though it wasn't very well received, which it's okay. I think it's just you know it's just, it's just a family coming together, you know, going through times and. You know, they're creating something here that's amazing. Buying a zoo. Buying a zoo. Doing something amazing. You know, see these wonderful human beings, you know, coming together. And uh, kind of shut the f*** up. Come out of your house right now, you bastard. Ow. It's scratch my skin. <laughs> Will they have a dog at the zoo? No, there is a dog. There is there is a dog around there. But, uh, no, it's, just, it's, a, it's, a real, it's a real good comfort movie, man. I love it. I love it much. You know, I watched it for this pod it was interesting. There are things in it. I haven't seen Elizabeth Town or Aloha. You don't need to. Well, <laughs> you know, I'd be I'd be interested because I am a Cameron Crowe fan, but I do wrestle with Crowe and I know he's probably heard this. I mean, first off, he's made great movies. He has a voice. I love that he's, he believes in the world. He's an optimist. I struggle though, and I think you really see it in Jerry Maguire on, although interestingly, almost famous has very little of this but there are very he goes for very sentimental or easy emotional beats that when i was watching we bought a zoo uh some of them didn't work for me like there's that thing at the end where they think no one's come to the zoo and then it's because a tree fell and then they start pulling people (laughs) over the tree like ticket paying people would glad like they show some 80 year old woman like climbing over there like come into the zoo like i get it i get how cameron crow thought that beat would play but it it didn't quite make sense to me but all this stuff with damon trying to deal with the death of his wife and that very last scene in the movie i was crying it's funny that Crow also has his finger on real emotional feelings. And I sort of liked how it was unresolved, what was going to happen between him and Scarlett Johansson. That was interesting to me, too, that, you know, they could have ended with, well, I'm over my wife now. <laughs> now I'm going to hook up with ScarJo. Uh, and instead, because <laughs> I'm Matt Damon, but instead it was more like they had an attraction, but they didn't know if it was right. And maybe Damon isn't really over his wife. And it, it was in, like that ambiguity was interesting to me so overall i thought it was a good movie and and i i like the emotion in it camera crow's last good movie is vanilla sky and almost famous and that's about it well and i i, I was just gonna say but you can see in we bought a zoo too i think the seeds there's of a maybe... sequel <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> cruise control we bought a zoo comma t-o-o <laughs> <laughs> oh so good yeah it's about how the sun and ellie fanning Oh, God. They also get a zoo. Uh, do you have other comfort movies that you turn to, Edwin? Oh, yeah. Uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. <laughs> nice. Because of all the F-bombs? Yeah. Do those comfort you? They do. They do a lot. It's mainly Al Pacino. Um, I saw Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross when in, during my high school days. And every morning when I went to school, my dad had like a little TV DVD player in the truck. <laughs> and I always bring a movie with me. The movie I brought with me all the time was Glengarry Glenn Ross and my dad would have to hear all the F-bonds that Al Pacino, Alec Baldwin, Ed Harrison, Jack Lemmon were all at the drop. And I was just like, you know, memorizing. How- I almost can memorize half the dialogue they said in the movie because they're all so great. I think I might have watched it before Letterboxd. I, I might have watched it like at least eight times. But it's probably up to like 12 now. I could watch that movie like every day and it would not you know, get me bored or anything. It would just keep me going. Plus, I learned a lot of efforts from that movie. I am not shocked in any 
part of my being that Glengarry Glen Ross is a comfort food movie for you. That almost feels like your Ur-text. That almost feels like the Rosetta Stone that unlocks the Edwin Caesar Gomez psychology. Correct code. It feels like what the sun is to Superman and F-bomb is to you. It just makes you a little more powerful. Yeah, it is. It does mean a little powerful. Like Popeye, whenever he says the F-bomb. It's like do, a spinach. Do, 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 do. Yeah. <laughs> the, I ran out because I had to pick up. Uh, the film print turned out to be M, Fritz Lang's M. So we uh, got... Nice. Turn, turn it away. Ooh, la, la. Give it back. Oh, my God. Give it back. The good movie, Edwin. Yeah, sure, sure it is. Sure You've never even is. seen it. I don't care. I don't want to see it. When I was a freshman in college, my uncle was the head of security at the Universal Sheridan for Universal Studios right there. If you ever see that Sheridan on the 101, he got me a job, although everybody knew I was his nephew, but he told me I couldn't say I was his nephew. He got me a job doing overnights as security there. And I remember one of the most hilarious ones was he had me working security on a prom where I was younger than the people at the prom because I think he started getting me that job when I was a high school junior. So I had to tell these high school seniors they couldn't come like down this corridor. And they looked at me and I was in an oversized suit. But one of the things he started to do because I didn't sleep a lot was have me do overnights where a convention would come and put their equipment. And all I had to do was watch this. And I'm sure I've told this story before, but I would just get movies to watch all night and I could go to the Universal Sheridan Kitchen and get a pizza and a big pitcher of root beer. And one of my favorite memories was I fell in love with Louis Bunuel. And one night, I think I watched The Exterminating Angel, Viridiana, and maybe Nazarene all in one night. And I was like discovering Bunuel while I was in this ballroom. I think it was the night that the postal workers were there, the USPS. And I remember them getting in a huge argument before they left everything. And I was like, wow, these guys are really uptight. And then the postal workers left. They were arguing about the setting of the stage or something. And then I just ate pizza and I watched Louis Bunuel. And it's funny to think of Bunuel as comfort food. But it, again, it's that like international cinema just like, wow, I love this tone. I love his tone. I, I would love to have that tone in my own movies. And so for me, weirdly, a comfort food definition is finding a vibe. It's almost like music, finding a vibe or a mood you want to be in and then just getting to be in that mood again and again and again. It's a wonderful thing. And then I think the fear would be one day watching it and not being in that mood, not getting that vibe. That'd be horrible. Pop culture, final thoughts. Uh, it's been a hell of a week, you know. I went to Paramount Pictures uh, the other day. Got to walk on the lot. Got to see some cool things. Got to uh, reenact some scenes, especially from Wayne's World and Laverne and Shirley. Saw uh, the Fred's for Coppola Avenue, Michael Bay, Sunset Boulevard, stage for Since the Cane that was shot there. Got a lot of Blu-rays out of it, which was amazing. Got, oh, I saw Michael Sarah at Los Feliz on uh, Monday night. Uh, he was watching Heartbreak Kid, and uh, I told him, uh, thank you for Superbad. So, yeah, I didn't mention the other piece of shit movie he's in. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm bummed I missed that. I heard it was a beautiful print. It was. It was. It was. Uh, too bad some pharmaceutical company owns the rights to that movie. Uh, whoever you are, uh, release the Heartbreak Kid. You're just a pharmacy. Wherever the f release the Heartbreak. Give it back to the people. Well said. Well said. I wanted to recommend, I watched for uh, my Monday movies, a couple movies that my buddy Paul has been recommending for a while and I've been wanting to watch. And we finally watched uh, Babe, Pig in the City, which I had never seen, which is great. 
have you ever seen that, Craig? I feel like I saw most of it. I don't know if I have seen all of it. It's though. very monkey centric. So I was thinking about you. Oh, I got to get on it right away. Then. It's like a family of uh, like performing monkeys are like kind of at the center of the film. It's just really good. The George Miller managed to sneak in like five chase scenes into this kids film paul was kind of mentioning how you could kind of read a lot of the movie as like a metaphor for COINTELPRO and other sort of weird government uh stuff it was kind of controversial when it came out because people were like what did i just take my kid to oh yeah but it's it's really good it will almost make a good my, my friend also mentioned paddington too and i wonder that would be a, a fun double feature potentially Babe 2 and Paddington 2. It's been a while since I've seen it, but Babe Pig in the City gave me Batman Returns vibes of like the oh, first one is definitely. so good, but then the second one is just such a different beast entirely. It's so good. And uh, you can find me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz and watch me play D&D Tuesday evenings at twitch.tv slash NerdHollow. My big uh, new release watch was Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which I really, really loved. I was very taken with it. It's a super weird and I think a little bit messy send-off, but it is so clearly made by someone who has control to some degree. Like There's a jarring amount of things that I was like, they let him do this? That I won't spoil. There's one moment in particular that is so simple that is perfect. And felt like this like cool, as we've talked to, Connor and I are both mega fans of, of Volume 2 in the realm of the MCU. And I think that this series is sort of this very special, singular thing. And I think the conclusion works. I thought it was, was a very beautiful send-off to these characters. Was it that definitive? It is definitive enough that this could be the, the end if they'd like it to be, but also leaves open, you know, if they want to, if stuff wants to cross back over. But as what James Gunn has brought to it, this feels like his... Goodbye. Yeah. In like a really lovely way that doesn't at all feel phoned in. And then my other recommendation, I went to go see both uh, Suzumi, which is the new anime from Makoto Shinkai. He did Your Name and Weathering With You. And he's definitely got like a thing that he loves to do with like love across time and stuff. If you can catch it on the big screen, it's stunning. It's a very, very beautiful movie. And then the other thing that really stood out to me that I caught was Polite Society which is um, Nita Manzuras, I believe is how her name pronounced, is her debut, which is super frustrating. I don't know if you guys ever watch a movie and it makes you kind of mad because it's so good. And then you hear that it's a debut and then it makes you mad because you're like, dang. It's about a young girl uh, from an Indian family and her sister's getting married. And essentially she thinks that the family that she's marrying into is evil. And so it's like this pseudo martial arts movie too, where they're going to, with the help of her friends, are going to go infiltrate and pull off a wedding heist is the way that I would describe it. But it's kind of got that Edgar Wright energy that I think people often try to replicate, but she nails. Because it's all, all of the energy is rooted in the characters. So the style and the characters go hand in hand. It's not just crazy camera moves for camera moves sakes. And it has like this really refreshing cultural focus where you're not getting stuff explained. It's just, this is the world to these characters and therefore it is. And I think that's really cool because it sort of puts it on us to need to be educated that I think is great. And the main two girls in it will be stars. They're so good. The lead, it's it's her debut too. Priya uh, Kansara steals the show. Highly recommend Polite Society. When I'm a little more awake and alert in the car, I listen to audiobooks, which is why you hear me say, I'm reading this, I'm reading that. I also read, read, but so I'm always reading two books at the same time. I'm reading one book in text and then listening to one book in the car, essentially. But when I'm exhausted 
And this has always been an interesting thing to me. I'll just listen to news or I'll listen to a 20 minute news show because it's easier for me. It's it's talk about comfort food. It just somehow doesn't require the same awareness that an audiobook. because I'm listening to Balzac right now. So Lost Illusions from the 19th century. And I love it. I always prefer to listen to the audiobook. It's always way more nutritious, but sometimes I'm so tired. Or now I'm listening to Karina Longworth's You Must Remember This. I'll like, I'll, I'll tune in. I'm listening to her erotic 90s series, which is great. I just listen to her, her basic instinct pod. But I was listening to a news thing about how, have you guys heard how Elon Musk was trying to get out of litigation for the Tesla thing? It's been on YouTube for seven years, but there was some kind of technology symposium. Elon Musk is there. And he says that it has been scientifically proven that already at this moment, self-driving cars are safer than cars driven by people. And this bit had existed and it was part of some interview he did. And obviously he's trying to move Tesla to be completely self-driving. Well, some guy used the self-driving feature in a Tesla car and died. I don't know if you guys heard about this, but he died. So they're suing. And his defense, Elon Musk's defense, because they used this clip to show that Elon Musk should be liable for making a statement that wasn't borne out uh, in reality. Elon Musk's legal team tried to argue that it was a deep fake. And they, <laughs> they actually tried to say that that clip was a deep fake, that he had never said that. And then in the course of this news piece, they said something I'd never heard before called the liar's dividend. And they said that the liar's dividend is that whenever things get called into question, the liar benefits. Because in the act of trying to debunk what the liar is saying, you are de facto validating that it might be in question because you are debunking it. And so one of the, the situations we're in right now is there are a lot of bad actors in geopolitics and corporations who, as long as they throw doubt, oh, that's a deep fake. Oh, that's not real. Oh, the protesters January 6th were just peacefully, what Tucker did on Fox. Like they're just peacefully taking a tour of the Capitol building or whatever that was. The very act of other organizations debunking that Actually, the liars benefit from that because everybody then is like, well, what's real? What's not? And by the way, that's nothing new. I mean, liars dividend probably all of human history. Liars have discovered, oh, if I can just get people to doubt it, then I benefit. But I would just say to everyone that really makes me angry and F these people, F these people who are doing this because they have so much money and so much power and they don't think they ever have to be accountable. And they have a lot of money to throw at lawyers and throw at media. And I just think we should be better than that. You know, they can't get away with that and don't let them get away with it. I did hear a little bit about that. And I heard that the judges were not super pleased about this arguments also. Well, and you know what made me, gave me some, and I'm an optimist as everyone knows. I'm, when I say these things, I'm never saying them cynically or pessimistic. I'm just that, I don't believe that. But I always believe in like, you know, the devil, you know, like know the issue, don't put your head in the sand. But what they said, Connor, to that point was actually, thank God in jurisprudence, there is hundreds of years of people trying to use the liar's dividend. And it goes back to when people would try to call into question a signature on a document. And so there is actually case law and precedent that even though it was a different kind of technology can be applied to deep fake arguments. And the judge can say, no, 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 no. You didn't do your homework. There is all this liars dividend jurisprudence that disproves that. And yeah, they were having none of it from Musk, but it's just funny to me that Musk, I mean, it's not funny. It actually makes all the sense in the world to me. It's audacious in a way. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's all the liars dividend we have time for uh, this week. <laughs> 
Uh, thank you, as always, to everybody. Uh, Secret Movie Club Podcast 153 will actually be a Seven Samurai conversation between Secret Movie Club team member Alex Olivier and myself. Alex just wrote a dynamite script. Alex is an amazing writer. He's our head projectionist, uh, our courier. I mean, Alex is working uh, like a, a workhorse for us. But he is a talented, as many of the people on the team are, a very talented filmmaker. And he devoted a lot of time to doing research into samurai to write a samurai script. Uh, so Alex and I are going to talk about Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, and it's going to be a standalone episode. As many of you know, we recently showed Seven Samurai, which is my Desert Island movie, and we had the biggest audience we've ever had, uh, 800 plus people. And so we thought, let's just give one single movie a pod. And in some ways, a Seven Samurai, uh, along with Raiders of the Lost Ark, are probably like the spine of Secret Movie Club in a way, or like why I started it and what keeps me going. And um, as always, this episode was edited by our Chief Creative Content Officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz. You can always write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. If you like what you hear, uh, please rate us, please review us. It does help. I should really start saying this. I got to get a little savvier just about how people are discovering things. So if you like Secret Movie Club, we really would appreciate a great review or a star or a like anywhere, you know, Apple, Spotify. Google, uh, where, wherever you want to do it. And if you think any of us are cute, leave a little wink in your review. <laughs> yeah. As always, you can see our upcoming schedule on secretmovieclub.com calendar, and you can get tickets at Eventbrite. We have a lot of stuff coming up. I love you guys. I will see you for next podcast. Have a great week, and I love you, family. Goodbye, Susan. Bye. Not watching a seven-hour crap movie. Nope, not doing it. No, thank you. I mean, to be f to be fair, Edwin, I I was gonna tell tell Craig that I'm gonna I'm gonna come and I'm gonna watch it, but I might I might end up tapping out. <laughs> it's really long. <laughs> I, and uh, I'll probably just divert to the lobby and watch a VHS tape. So I, I would not be watching. But any I'll other I'll give it a chance. That's amazing. You're gonna be at the club for seven and a half hours. Yeah. But you won't be watching Satan. You're gonna use no, that I, as an I won't do that. I will if I tap out. I'll just leave. Ha 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 ha.